message. Amen. We preach Christ. And we want to do that song and we'll be doing it throughout the month because that's our new series for this month. It's called We Preach Christ. And boy, I'll tell you what, what a 
powerful song that is and what a powerful message uh, the name of Christ is. Just to say his name uh, gets a response, doesn't it? Well, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We're going to begin reading in verse 18. We're going to read through verse 25 this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. Let's go ahead and as you turn there, we'll get to our place and then we'll have a word of prayer and we'll kind of move along here. We're going to have a baptism today. You'll have a good time watching. <laughs> uh, we're going to be uh, putting it up on the screens. We wanted our auditorium to reflect our Sunday school promotion taking place, and the designer forgot a hole in the middle. And so we decided that we'll just go ahead and do it with all this new technology. It shouldn't be a problem at all, right? We'll be seeing it take place live right here in front of you. And so we'll get that done today. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. <clears throat> chapter 1, verse 18. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. But unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and I will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. For the Jews require a sign, and the, Gentile, the Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. Unto the Jews a stumbling block, and unto the Greeks foolishness. But unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. He says, but we preach Christ crucified. He says it's under the Jews a stumbling block. Boy, I'll tell you what, as we've looked through history and looked through time, there is no doubt that the Jew himself has been stumbling over the cross of Jesus Christ and over the person Jesus for century upon century. Man, the Jew wanted a sign. They wanted someone to show the way. They're looking for a highway marker, if you will, some sign that would give them direction and deliver them into the, a place of power and authority. And, and, and yet, that's not what they got. They've got someone that went to a cross, not somebody that ultimately brought down Rome. Man, they were looking for a deliverer. They are looking for somebody to bring them to a place and to back where they used to be in their history on top of all the nations. Instead, what they got was Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. They wanted a lion. And as a result, they have continued to trip over and stumble over the Lord Jesus Christ for century after century after century because a crucified Christ was simply an insult to them. It meant defeat, not victory. So they didn't want to accept it at all. In Romans chapter 9, verse 33, the Apostle Paul writing to the church at Rome says, And it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense, and whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. Again, notice there's the stumbling block, the rock of offense that's laid in Zion there. Peter wrote in 1 Peter 2, chapter, chapter 2, verses 7 and 8, Unto you, therefore, which believe, he is precious, but unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense, even to them which stumble at the word, being disobedient, whereunto also they were appointed. A stumbling block. He goes on to say, 
to the Greeks, or if you will, the Gentiles, the cross was foolishness. It was foolishness. They considered it utterly ridiculous. The cross, it's ridiculous. It has no purpose. It's such a waste of life. If you're going to save something, you, you need to live, not die. The idea that the cross was the answer made no sense at all to them. It, it was totally contrary to rational, worldly thinking. In Rome, it's been found, or there has been found a caricature of Christianity. It's still around today. It's a figure on the cross with an ass head. It's a total disrespect to Jesus Christ and to Christianity. It still exists today. It's one of the oldest artifacts they found. Let me tell you something. The world has never looked at Jesus as, as what he ought to be. They've never elevated him and magnified him as he should. They believe he's, it was all foolishness. It makes no sense to the Gentile. None whatsoever. None at all. And by the way, that word isn't a bad word if it's used biblically. Just so you don't get in the, your idea the wrong place. I didn't use it that way. Some of you may, but I don't. I try not to. Don't think I'm bad because I used it. Let me tell you something. I'll guarantee you this. One thing you and I better get back to is biblical terms. Because I'm telling you, the world is twisting the words that we use to describe things in our world. You better use words. Instead of talking about gays, you better use sodomy. You better start using biblical terms. Drunkard. Those are all going to be outlawed. Alcoholic is going to be outlawed, they're telling us now. It's going to be a word of offense. You cannot say it anymore. I mean, you better use the biblical term because when you're standing before a judge one day, you want to be able to say, the only reason I use it is because that's what my Lord used, and I am a Christian, and I'm going to do it the way God said. And you can go back and check me. It's been said that way for year and year and year and year after. Century after century, it's been termed that way. We better get back to some biblical terms. That's a whole other message, but we better get back to it. So we got this, the, the foolishness of preaching, the foolishness of the preached message. It's not just the method, it's the message that's foolish to them. Man, you say, well, preaching, well, I saw Adolf Hitler preach and he moved the nation. But when you preach the gospel, it's offensive. It's the message that just grinds them to a halt. It's a message that just wreaks havoc within their heart. It's something they cannot stand they don't want anything to do with it. Man, the, 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 the Lord in the passage here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit says, listen, the crucified Christ was a stumbling block to the Jew. He is, the preaching of the cross is foolishness to them, to the Gentile. As offensive as the cross and the Savior may be, Paul stands unapologetically and he states and proclaims, we preach Christ. Man, I don't think that Paul was standing in the corner somewhere or behind a tree or uh, uh, behind a building and went, we preach Christ. Man, we could see him going into town after town, city after city, and proclaiming a resurrected Christ. Man, he stood unapologetically before the masses who did not believe in Jesus, who Jesus was a stumbling block, the cross was a stumbling block, who to the Gentiles, he, it was an offense. It was utter foolishness. And yet he said, we preach Christ. We preach a risen Savior. We're not ashamed to say it. We're not ashamed to stand on it. 
He understood that Christ was and is the only answer to mankind's predicament. In the second epistle to the Corinthians, Paul makes this statement. He says in chapter 4, verse 5, For we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your servants for Jesus' sake. We preach not ourselves, he says. We are not the answer. We're not the solution. Don't elevate us and put us in that position. No, Jesus Christ is still the answer. That's what he's saying. He and his colleagues understood that truth. And so they said, we preach Christ. So who is this Christ? This Christ that we say we preach. And man, everywhere you go, people like to use names. You know, it talks about loving God and serving God and I'm spiritual and, and oh, I know about Jesus, but do you know the biblical Jesus? You know, the Bible Jesus. Not the one that's concocted in our mind, not the one that we create on our own, not the one that is, is sympathetic to our woes, uh, so to speak, in the sense of our sinful woes. Oh, well, he understands why I do what I do. He realizes why I'm so weak in this area. He knows that I can't help it. That's not the Jesus I read about in the Bible. And yet sometimes if we're not careful, we concoct our own image or our own view of who Christ is and say, hey, man, God, we are tight. Okay. Who is this Christ that Paul the Apostle preached that we saw preached throughout the New Testament? We preach Christ, he said. So who's Christ? Well, first of all, he's God. It's important to realize that Jesus Christ is God. We've got to know that right off the bat. Okay, so turn if you would to Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. We know that Christ's first coming was prophesied. And we find it in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 9. It's a passage that we often read about in Chris, at Christmas time. Notice what the Bible says here and how it describes him. Notice what it says. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. For unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name. Watch it now. Look at, the, look at the titles that are ascribed to Jesus Christ, because we know he's the one being spoken of in the passage who would ultimately come and fulfill the prophecy. His name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Notice again, he is the Mighty God. He's the Everlasting Father. That's Jesus Christ. That's the one who's being spoken of in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. He is the mighty God and the everlasting Father. You say, well, when I think of the mighty God or the everlasting Father, I think of God the Father. Yes, but it, those characteristics, those, those titles there are ascribed to Jesus. He, therefore, is equal with God or, and is God. The Apostle Paul, while writing to Timothy, his son in the faith, he points out that Jesus is God as well. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, he says, And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up to glory. Again, he says, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. That was Jesus Christ. God manifest in the flesh. We think about Jesus, and sometimes if we're not careful, we see him as some kind of, sub-God, like he's 
underneath God, that there's this hierarchy, there's God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit in that order. There is no order. They are one. The Apostle John reminds us that the Word of God is synonymous with Jesus Christ as well. Turn to John chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. And with that being the case, we're going to see that Jesus is God again, according to verse 1. Notice what it says in John chapter 1. Verse 1 and 2. <clears throat> he says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. Verse 14. And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So the word as we're being, spo as being spoken of in verses 1 and 2 is, is defined for us in verse 14 as Jesus Christ. I mean, right there we have it. In the beginning was the word. In the beginning. That sounds familiar with Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God. In the beginning was the word. And the word was God, it says. It's interesting in the Jehovah Witness Bible, before they ever got the New World Translation and they used the King James Bible, they would often cross out words there in their Bible and then in the front they would change it and identify what that word should be. Can I tell you, they messed with John chapter 1 verse 1. Why? Because it plainly taught that Jesus Christ is God. And they don't believe that. They believe he's a creation of God. Can I tell you that this passage clearly teaches that Jesus Christ is God. Not only that, but John confirms the reality of the Trinity. Turn, if you would, to 1 John chapter 5, verse 7. 1 John chapter 5, verse 7. What a powerful verse this is. And again, this is another verse that in many tra uh, translations has been removed or moved around. You say, well, I, I don't know, what are you talking about? You're talking about Bible translations now. I, you know, I, well, okay, I'm not really talking about that, but I can tell you which one you can trust. It's called a King James Bible. Not the new King James either, by the way. You need to get a Bible that you can trust all the way through. A Bible that removes verses out of it because it doesn't align with the philosophy or the thinking of other people. I don't want that Bible. I want one that just says what it says and means what it says, and I'll just go ahead and have to adapt my life to it. 1 John chapter 5, verse 7. For there are three that bear record in heaven. Here they are now the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. We could stop there, but I think we can learn a lot by following through. It says, and these three are one. You say, explain that. I can't. It's a mystery. The Bible, we already read that in, in, in the book of uh, um, First, First Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. He says, and without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. One day I'll understand it. One day I'll be able to wrap my mind around it. One day I'll, it'll all be revealed and I'll have full and complete understanding in that area potentially. And I'll be honest with you, when I get to heaven, I'm not going to have every answer because then I'd be God. He's always going to know more than me. He's always going to have a better handle on things than me. I might know a lot more, and I hope I can understand this concept. This concept sometimes is very confusing. But can I tell you that there's many things that we believe by faith, even in our own lives, that we exercise on a daily basis? I'll tell you right now, this book is God's Word. It's pretty clear, and it's pretty obvious, as we're going to find here in the future as we study. But I'll tell you this much. These three are one. Jesus Christ is God. 
Number five. This is my fifth one. <laughs> In the beginning of the book of Revelation, turn there, would you? Revelation chapter one. We are immediately reminded about the person that we're dealing with in Revelation, because it's the revelation of Jesus Christ is what we find. But notice what happens here. We're going to realize that who we're dealing with is Jesus, and we're going to learn something about him. He is the mighty, the almighty God. Look what it says in Revelation chapter 1, verse 7. He says, Behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him, and they also which pierced him, and all kindred of the earth shall wail because of him. Even so, amen. It's interesting now because he switches. He says, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty. Now again, someone may say, well, okay, it switches there. He's talking about Jesus Christ who came ultimately, who was pierced, who died, was buried and rose again. But hold on. As you get to the end of that verse 18, notice, or excuse me, verse 8, notice it says, which was and which is, excuse me, which is, which was, and which is to come. That points back to Jesus Christ again. So who's speaking here? It's Jesus. And he's saying, I am Alpha and I am Omega. I'm the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's saying, I am he which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty. An amazing, a wonderful truth. In verse 18, uh, we, could, we can look there. Uh, actually, I probably read verse 18 already, but I might have forgot to even put it down here. Look at verse 18 of chapter 1. Revelation 1. You're already there. I'm going to have to turn to it because I wrote that one down. He says here in verse 18, I'm wondering if I said it already and I just forgot to mark it. But he says, he says, I am he that liveth. There it is. That's what it was. I've mixed the two up. I've put 7, 8, and 18 together. And he says, I am he that liveth and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore and have the keys. Notice this. And have the keys of hell and of death. Okay, so he's responding, he's repeating that one more time as we see that there in the passage again. He restates that in verse 18, just like he did in verse 8. So we see the reality that Jesus Christ is God. Hold on. Do you realize that as God, Jesus Christ then is creator? Turn, if you would, to Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. And this brings us to our next point because it's really the reality. We say, who is this Christ that they preached? We preach Christ. The Apostle Paul said, well, who in the world is this Christ? He's God, but he's not just God, he's creator. He's creator God. Notice in Genesis 1.1 and 1.2, it says, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Now, at this point, there's no debate. As we open up the word of God and we say, okay, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. We say, oh, God created. And we have no problem with that. The problem, it gets a little bit more muddied when you turn to Colossians chapter 1. Turn there, would you please? Because again, remember, there's a trinity at work here. There are three, but they are one according to 1 John 5, 7. And so notice what it says in Colossians. This act of creation is accredited to Jesus Christ now. You say, how can that be? Either God the Father did it or Jesus Christ the Son Somebody, wait a second, you could even muddy the waters a little further because later on in verse 2, he says, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. So the Spirit was involved in creation as well. So we have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They're all involved in creation. They're equally involved. They're all three working as one because they are one. Notice Colossians 1.15. It says, speaking of Christ, who is the image of the invisible God. 
the firstborn of every creature. For by him were all things created that are in heaven, that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him, and he is before all things, and by him all things consist. And it's pretty clear then, based on the scriptures, that Jesus Christ is creator. See, he is God. So now, it's really not that much of a conflict if he is God in the beginning, God created. He's also now, we see creator. He is God. The three are one. And so when we think about the Christ who's being preached here, we preach Christ. We're talking about preaching God. We're talking about preaching about the creator. That's who he is. We'll talk about more things along throughout the month that Jesus Christ is and define who he is a little bit more. But he is God and he is creator. So the existence of God is a given. Because like you say, when you turn to uh, Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God. That's it. That's all you get. So the existence of God is a given, at least as far as God's concerned. God himself, nor does the word spend time trying to prove his existence. It states his existence. All that we're told again is in the beginning, God. The existence of God is manifest in creation. It's manifest in our consciences. He does not try, however, to prove where he came from. Well, where'd God come from? He doesn't tell us. He just says, it is. I am. That's what he told the Israelites. I am. And can I tell you, when it comes to this issue, well, where did he begin? When did he start? He has no beginning. He has no end, the Bible says. He's from everlasting. He is God. And that's all the Bible does. It does not try to somehow prove his existence. John Glenn was an astronaut many, many years ago. He recently died. Uh, He was involved in government for years. But while speaking about his view of the earth from the space shuttle Discovery, he made this statement. He said, to look, at out, to look at that window as I did that first day, to look out at this kind of creation and not believe in God is to me impossible. Here he is up in the heavenly, so to speak, looking down on the earth, and he says, how in the world can you not believe there's a God when you see firsthand what he's created? Again, the existence of God was assumed for, well, the most part, at least, at least till Darwin showed up in his groundbreaking book, a book entitled On the Origin of Species by Means of Natural Selection or the Preservation of Favored Races in the Struggle for Life. That was the name of the book. They don't tell you all that in school. This volume is considered to be one of the foundation. It's, it's a foundation of evolutionary biology. It's the foundation. It introduced the scientific theory that populates, uh, excuse me, that populations evolve, that they evolve over the course of generations through a process of what is called natural selection. Over time, scientists have, of course, introduced a a number of twists and turns in the theory of evolution. Uh, However, when it's all said and done, the foundation of everything they believe really rests on Darwin. Again, they have to change things because, well, like our president said, science changes. I didn't think science was supposed to change. But anyway, we'll move on. But they keep changing it to fit their narrative in evolution too, by the way. The world's always responded the same way. If it doesn't line up, change it. And can I tell you, Christianity is doing the same thing in their Bibles. 
It's sad, isn't it? Because that's the natural bend of man. If you can't beat them, chain it, change it. I, I got you, didn't I? <laughs> gotcha. Pastor's pretty slick today. For the past 150 years, however, Satan has been at work. He's been undermining the existence of God. He's been securing a foothold in the minds and lives of untold millions. How's he doing that? By an un, listen to me, an unfounded theory. And it is unfounded, by the way. Michael Denton, in his book Evolution, A Theory in Crisis, he summarized it this way. He said, the universal experience uh, of paleontology is that while the rocks have continually yielded new and exciting and even bizarre forms of life, what they have never yielded is any of Darwin's myriads of transitional forms. Despite the tremendous increase in geological activity in every corner of the globe, and despite the discovery of many strange and hitherto unknown forms, the infinitude of connecting links has still not been discovered, and the fossil record is about as discontinuous as it was when Darwin was writing The Origin. The intermediates have remained as exclusive as ever, and their absence remains a century later one of the most striking characteristics of the fossil record. The, the fact that there is no connection between an amoeba and a man walking upright, because you can't really show evolution in stages. There's no, Dr. Leakey used to talk about the missing link. Can I tell you, it's still missing. It's still missing. I still remember in science class in the 1970s, I was three, and I remember them talking about the missing link. Dr. Leakey, he's looking for it. He's searching in Africa. He's searching in Russia. He's searching around the globe for the missing link that will link us and ultimately prove without doubt that evolution is real and true. It's, it's true, don't misunderstand me, but we're waiting for the missing link to confirm it. It's never been confirmed because the missing link's still out there. I think a few of you are out there now. No, I'm teasing, okay? Oh, boy, that was a rough one, wasn't it? Okay, so anyway, that didn't fly too good. So when the scientific method is applied to the theory of evolution, I'm talking about the scientific method that you learned in school, that I learned in school. One of them is you have to be able to observe it. Well, that blows it out of the water right there. I don't, anybody, anybody there all those billions of years and see the Big Bang? Of course not. It's scientific, is it? It's a theory and it has not been proven yet. And still evolutionary biologist Ernest Mayer, he states it this way. He says, no educated person any longer questions the validity of the so-called theory of evolution, which we now know to be a simple fact. Really? We? Who's we? You got a mouse in your pocket? Because I don't know. I don't believe that. The only fact I know is that there's a number of holes that are either overlooked or dismissed. And can I tell you why? Simply because their beginning point leaves no place for God in the equation. They can't even open their mind enough to say, if there is a God and it points to God, then we'll have to believe. No, we will not believe there's a God. That's impossible. Therefore, it has to be evolution. And that's why it has to be what they say. Because God 
is foolishness. The preaching of Christ is foolishness to them. Nothing's changed since the days of Paul. Still the same. As it stands today, misguided scientists have misinformed educators who have misled generations and parents and children throughout these last 50, 75, 150 years, really. When Darwin first came out, people didn't gravitate to it. It wasn't until the, 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 kind of toward the, the mid-1900s that it really took root and really got steaming. Scientific of, uh, people in science had already been playing around with it for years and years before it ever became mainstream. But it became mainstream. Most of it in our lifetimes, if you're over 50. The result? A culture that's wounded by doubt. Who's confused about God. Humanity that's bent on rebellion toward God. And quickly, if not already reaching a tipping point of rejecting God altogether. Look at the numbers. If you look at any kind of data, you're finding that more and more people are becoming what they call atheistic. They don't believe in a God at all. More and more people. Can I tell you, this is not the time to shut our mouths, turn the key, and throw it away. And this is a time to preach Christ to people, to tell them there is an option, and it's Jesus, and he's the only way, the only truth, and the only life. Their science will not save them. Their society will not save them. Programs won't save them. Only Jesus can do that. Prominent evolutionary biologist and historian William Provine of Cornell University, he spelled it out explicitly, and he said, here's what Darwinism, if it's true, would mean. Number one, there'd be no evidence for God. There's no evidence for God. Number two, there's no life after death. Number three, it would mean there's no absolute foundation for right and wrong. See evidence of that in our culture right now. There's no ultimate meaning for life. And people really don't have free will. Think about that. It's natural selection. You really don't choose... Nature chose for you. Only the strong survive in Darwin's world. See, there's no evidence of God now. If indeed Darwinism is true, if indeed evolution is true, well, there's no need. There's no afterlife. There's no God. There's no absolute right or wrong. There's no ultimate meaning for life, and people really don't have a free will. That doesn't sound very encouraging. He's right, though. And Christ and the cross are still viewed as utter foolishness by many. We see that Jesus is the creator. We could look at Genesis chapter 1 and go right through the creative act and we would recognize that he only simply spoke. It's interesting that he's called the word of God in John chapter 1 and the creator simply spoke. It's pretty cool. So here's the message now. That's all introductory. Don't worry, the message will be over in the next hour and a half. So who is this Christ that Paul... And every believer since has preached then. He's God and he's the creator. He is God and he is the creator. I want you to turn now to Psalm chapter 113, verse 4 through 6. Psalm 113, verses 4 through 6. Powerful passage here. We're talking about Christ, the Christ that was preached by the Apostle Paul, the Christ that 
we claim to preach today. Notice who he is. He's God and the creator. But watch Psalm chapter 113, verse 4 through 6. The Lord is high above all nations. Who's he talking about? He's talking about God. And we know Jesus is God. So when we preach Christ, think about what we're going to read here. Think about this. The Lord is high above all nations and his glory above the heavens. Who is like unto the Lord our God, who dwelleth on high, watch this, who humbleth himself to behold the things that are in heaven and in earth. I don't know about you, but that caught my eye. I I looked at that and I thought, wow. I mean, the Bible's simply telling us this, that that Jesus that we preach, the Christ that we speak about, that the God of heaven and earth, the creator, the, the, the creator God, he is high above all nations. His glory is above the heavens. And, and he says, who's like him? Who dwelleth on high? Who really can reach his pinnacle? Who can climb to his height? Who can measure up? None of us can. Why? He says, he humbleth himself to behold the things that are in heaven and in earth. Consider how high the Lord must be if he has to humble himself to even look upon heaven. Think about that for a minute. I know it goes contrary to our thinking. We think, this is impossible. What are you talking about? He literally sits on a throne in heaven. I know, but the fact is, is that the Jesus Christ that we preach is God. And can I tell you, he is so far above us that he can't even look upon heaven without humbling himself. He has to bow down and get on his knees. And he has to look at the heavens from his knees. He can't see them standing. He's so high up. I don't even, I can't even wrap my mind around this, let alone the earth. He has to get on his knees and he has to humble himself to see heaven. I mean, think about that. And we flippantly go about our lives. Oh, I I believe in God, I believe in Jesus. Oh. What does he mean? Who is he? Well, he's my friend. He saved me. That's good. But do you really recognize and understand who God describes himself as being? Who he really is? He's so high. He's so high. I can't see him. And he can't see me if it wasn't for the fact that he humbled himself. And we can't even humble ourselves between husband and wife. We're so high, we're so lifted up, that I won't say I'm sorry no matter what happens. I'm always right, don't you tell me I'm wrong. I won't apologize, I won't forgive, I will not bow myself and humble myself. And yet God in heaven bowed himself just to be able to see you. To be able to see heaven. Can you see heaven today? I can't. Why? It's too high. It's too far away. I take my glasses off and I can't see you. You're so far away. (laughs) Think about Jesus. Paul said, we preach Christ. You may see him as a stumbling block and an offense. You may say he's foolishness and it's ridiculous to even consider him, but we preach Christ. 
What a privilege it is to say his name, let alone preach his name. How high must he be that he must humble himself just to look upon things that are in heaven, let alone earth? Hold on. How much higher then is he than us? You say, we've talked about that, I know. Turn, if you would, to Isaiah 55, though, and he points out some truths again that kind of confirm this thought. I mean, we don't, I mean, let's face it, he's so high that sometimes if we're not careful, we are prone, actually, to try and bring him down to our level in order to understand him, in order to understand his ways. We, we try and place him in a box in order to define him, to comprehend his greatness, to be able to explain it and to share it with others. And I get that. And I don't think there's anything wrong with trying to explain who God is and using the scriptures to do so. And obviously we must do that because we have to preach Christ. But hold on. The truth is, I don't care how much you study the Bible. I don't care how close you get to God. You will never get that close that you know him the way he is really. You only know him based on how he defines himself in the scriptures. Listen, you say, well, I'm in my closet and I get to know God. Let me tell you something. The only way you really get to know God is through the word of God. And then as you get alone with God, you can have the truths of the word of God manifest in your life. And he begins to work in your life. By the way, he will not reveal to you things he did not reveal through his word. Don't come to me and tell me God told you to kill somebody. Don't tell me he told you to, to murder your children. Hey, we have people that are nutcases in our world that'll go around saying, Jesus told me to do that. He ain't telling you to do that. It's not in the scriptures. But wait, we as Christians, though, we not go that far, but we'll say things, oh, God told me to... Wait a second, does it line up with the scriptures? Well, he, told, he put that woman right in my pathway, and so I know he put her there, but you're already married. God did that? How's that? It violates the scriptures. He didn't reveal that to you. His ways are so much higher than... Look at this. Look at Isaiah 55. We can't even imagine how much higher he is than us, let alone express it. The thought that he has to humble himself, even to look upon heaven, is impossible for us to grasp, I think. Isaiah 55, 6 through 9. Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call ye upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return unto the Lord. And he will have mercy upon him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. How's that possible? Well, he's going to tell us in just a minute. How's it possible that God is able to look upon Israel who consistently sinned against him over and over and over and over and over and over and over again, who committed spiritual adultery left and right, who rejected the Lord, who revealed himself to them, even in Egypt and throughout their history. How's that possible? Here it is now. Here it is. It's the context of the passage now. He says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. You know what he's saying? You and your humanness could never forgive the way I've forgiven. You would annihilate that country. You would get rid of those people. You would say, enough is enough. But your ways aren't my ways and your thoughts aren't my thoughts. I'm so much higher than you. 
I see things different than you. You can't comprehend how I view you. My heart breaks when I see you sitting against me. My heart breaks to think that you wouldn't have anything to do with me. And yet I'll forgive you if you'll just humble yourself. I'll forgive you if you come to me and ask. His ways are so much higher. We can't wrap our mind around that kind of forgiveness and that kind of mercy. But remember, he's got to humble himself just to see heaven. That's how high he is. He's so unlike us. He's so unique. He's so different. He's God. And when Paul the Apostle stands and he preaches, he says, we preach Christ. We preach Christ who's so high and lifted up, you could never even think to own him as your own. You could never even imagine that he'd forgive you. You can't even wrap your mind around the fact that he cares for you, and yet he does. We take so much for granted when it comes to Christ. We take passages when he talks about being a friend, and we just distort all of that mess. We act like he treats us like our friends may treat us. That we can abuse him and use him and do all those things that he's just supposed to be there for us like some old man that passes out candy. Somebody a lot older than me. So I'm not an old man. I'm looking for one. Because if you got candy, I'll see you after the service. It's unbelievable, though, isn't it, how we treat him? I want to encourage you today to remember who Jesus is. Paul the Apostle, <laughs> he, he really was an amazing man of God. He says, for the Jews require a sign, the Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. Our message is not complicated, it is simple. But it is dynamite. You know why it's dynamite? Because Christ is dynamite. To think of who he really is. I mean, in light of who he is, doesn't it just floor you that Christ loves you? Aren't you amazed that he wants anything to do with you? Aren't we? I mean, why aren't we so, why aren't we amazed at that? Can you even believe that Jesus Christ will save you if you ask? Think about it. Why would, why would he? And if there's even a glimmer in your heart, well, because, I, you know, that's our arrogancy. That's our pride already. Just that we would even think he owes us anything. He's so much higher, he has to humble himself to see heaven, let alone earth. What is man that thou art mindful of him, the psalmist says. As a child of God, I wonder... How will you and I show Christ our appreciation for all that he's done for us? And finally, knowing what you know about Christ, will you tell others about him? It is amazing, even in my own life, how I clam up so quickly. When Jesus Christ is so vast and so great and so unbelievable, he is not just like winning some sweepstakes. He won a million bucks. Yeah. He's so much more than that. 
or giving away a Traeger to the person or rewarding the person who brings the most visitors over 15 uh, uh, for this promotion over the month. Oh, wow, I want a Traeger. Can I tell you? He's much greater than a Traeger. I'm just saying, how high do you see him in your life? How high do I see him in my life? Christ is God, and he is the creator. Throughout the month, we're going to look at him in light of a few other different qualities and characteristics. But boy, just the thought that he has to humble himself to even see heaven, to look upon it, let alone earth, that's humbling. I wonder, do you know Christ is your savior? It's amazing that a God like that, so great, so high, so lifted up, would have anything to do with you. But can I tell you, you have hope? You say, how do you know that? Because he showed me the time of day. I guarantee you, you ain't any worse than me. And if he would give me the privilege of salvation, he'll give it to you. He'll give it to you and he'll give it to you. But you have to come to him his way. Just like we learned in Sunday school today, you have to do things God's way in order to get God's result. You have to do it specifically the way he designs it and expresses it. He says, but as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God. You have to receive him. You have to accept him. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Because neither is there salvation in any other. For there's none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. There is no other escape from hell and from the punishment and penalty of sin except Jesus Christ. And can I tell you, I thank God that he was willing to humble himself not only to look at heaven, not only to look upon earth, but to literally come and take his place among his creation. And there he died on Calvary and shed his precious perfect blood for me and for you. You talk about humility. Will you humble yourself today and cry out to the Lord and say, I'm a sinner and I deserve hell, but I want you to save me, Jesus. And if you're a child of God today, will you say, Lord, you're so much bigger, so much better, so much higher than I even could imagine. I want to be, I want to be more for you. I want to be more yielded, more surrendered, more given to service. I want you to have all of me even as you gave me all of you. Father, we come to you. We thank you for this time we've had together in the word of God, and we ask, Lord, that you would just bless and work and move. We thank you for the simplicity of the truth. Lord, I know there are times that things can be somewhat tricky and even complicated, or so it seems, but Lord, the truth is is that you make it easy for us if we'll just obey it, if we'll just do it. It's the doing that's hard. Help us, Father, just to give our will to you, to surrender ourselves to you. Thank you that you, being so high and lifted up, would come and humble yourself and take your place on Calvary to pay for our sin. We owe you everything. And there is not one thing you could ask us that would be too much. Help us, Lord, to ever express our gratitude through our yielded, surrendered life. Father, we need you. We love you. So I'll stand every